He was only three years old when his father died, but it was not really a significant loss to the little boy because his father had become a murderer and a cheat. Well, to continue her son's education in the negative sense, the mother of this little boy then took over the family trade because she soon murdered her second husband, the boy's stepfather, by feeding him a bowl of poisoned mushrooms. And then while he was still young, the boy followed right in his parents' footsteps because he committed his first murder. He murdered a young teenage youth who had stood in his way, and then he callously watched as the young man died in agony. He married at the age of 15, but he soon got bored of his young wife, and so he had her murdered. And then he repeated the same procedure with his second wife. Then, in order to marry his third wife, he had to have her husband eliminated, which he also managed to arrange. And then, by this time, his own mother, you know, the mother who had poisoned his stepfather, he began, she began to get on his nerves, so he also had her killed. This individual that I'm talking about was a literal person, person who actually existed in history. He is said to have been an extremely ugly man, outside as well as inside. He had a big bull neck, beetle brows, a flat nose, and a tough mouth. He had a big pot belly, spindly legs, bad skin, and an offensive body odor. At the age of 31, he was sentenced to death by flogging. But he managed to escape to a damp, dark dungeon where he cut his own throat. It is this man who I have been talking about who gave the infant church of the Lord Jesus Christ its first real taste of Satan's persecution. What was his name? Nero. Emperor Nero, the first of the ten Roman Caesars who persecuted the young church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we began to look at the second Revelation church letter, which the glorified Lord Jesus Christ himself wrote, of course, by way of the pen of the Apostle John. He wrote, Christ wrote this to the body of believers in Asia Minor um, in the city of Smyrna. This little church we talked about had encountered a lot of persecution, as did all of the Christian churches in that day. However, because the word Smyrna literally translates, or it is the same word as the word myrrh, Smyrna is the word myrrh in Greek, by the way, so it's the same word. Because it translates as myrrh, and because the Lord Jesus particularly addressed the matter of suffering and persecution and tribulation, you know, being crushed, in this particular letter, then we say that Smyrna represents all persecuted churches and all persecuted Christians throughout the church age. And it also prophetically pictures for us the second stage in church history, the time from Nero, this man I just told you about, to the reign of Diocletian, who was the last Roman emperor to persecute the church during this stage at least. And uh, one interesting thing I found out about Emperor Diocletian, he was the worst of the ten as far as persecuting the church. He really, really persecuted them 
horrendously, the last of the ten persecuting Caesars, but his own wife and his own daughter became Christians. And I thought that was just a little interesting fact to share with you. So this was the time when the universal church was heavily and unmercifully persecuted by Satan's wicked, wicked human agents. It had become obvious to Satan that the apostolic church, the early church, because of its faithful preaching of the gospel, had become a very serious threat to his ungodly world system. And therefore, he relentlessly and violently attacked the church with his effort to obliterate her, to eliminate her. However, what happened? Exactly the opposite. The contrary became true. As Tertullian put it, he said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more the lost people of the world beheld the incredible faith of the dying Christian martyrs, men like Polycarp, who we looked at last week, the more they beheld faith like that, the more they turned to Christianity. They saw that the Christians had something worth dying for, and they wanted that kind of faith and assurance in their own lives. They say that if you don't have anything worth dying for, you really don't have anything worth living for. Now, as we mentioned in our first lesson on the Smyrna Church, their letter from the Lord Jesus is the shortest of the seven Revelation letters. It's only four verses long, if you count it. It's a very short letter. However, it does contain the most comfort and the most encouragement and the most assurance of victory. And the wonderful thing about it is that it does not contain even one single word of condemnation. The greatest commendation, the greatest approval that the Lord Jesus can possibly give to any local church body is not to have one word of reproof, not one word of criticism to say to it. Wouldn't you agree? That's the greatest compliment he could give to a body of believers, is not to say anything negative about it. In last week's lesson, which was lesson number 12, today's lesson is number 13, We discussed some of the known details about both the city of Smyrna, as it existed in first century Asia Minor, and then also about the church. We don't know a whole lot about the church that existed there other than what we're told in Revelation, but we told you a little bit about what we know about the church that existed there. And then we discussed the appropriate designation of himself, which the Lord used in his letter to the Smyrnan believers... Um, a designation of himself which came from the chapter 1 vision that John had of the glorified Christ. And then we began to look at the longest section of our outline, which is the declaration of Christ. However, we only had time to cover part A, which was his approval. So with this lesson this morning, we're going to begin our lesson by finishing up our study on the church at Smyrna by looking at Part B, his advice, then his appeal, and then his award. And then we're going to move on to start our look at the third church letter, which was written to the church at Pergamos. So let's begin by looking at verse 10 of Revelation 2. This comes under part 4 of our outline on the Smyrna church. And we're going to move to the Lord's advice. We talked about his approval. 
If you didn't get hear that, you need to get the tape or get the notes. And we're going to move right now on to see what his advice to them was. So look with me at verse 10. He says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. In this verse, the Lord gave loving counsel to the believers at Smyrna, as well as to the countless other churches and Christians throughout the church age who have suffered for his name's sake. His counsel basically here consisted of two pieces of advice. He told them, in essence, to fear nothing, and secondly, to be faithful unto death. He said, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. What he was telling the Smyrna believers here was that they really had nothing of which to be afraid, even though he predicted in advance, telling them in advance, that the devil would be successful in persecuting them, although it would be for a limited time. He mentions 10 days, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Yet this suffering, he says, essentially, was not not anything that they should fear with that type of paralyzing, all-consuming type of fear. You know, I'm in their humanity, you can imagine that they're going to be fearful. Would not you be fe- I mean, let's be realistic. You're going to be fearful if you know that you might be put into a net and thrown to lions to be devoured, or if you're going to be set on fire as a human torch, or if you're going to be boiled alive in boiling oil. Obviously, the Lord knows that our Our hearts would be fearful, and their hearts were fearful. But he's saying don't be consumed with a fear that absolutely paralyzes you. Um, Don't be fearful for for eternal reasons. He knows that they're going to be anxious about it. Any of us would be. But he says for, for two main reasons you don't need to fear to the point of, you know, having a heart attack and dying on the spot. First of all, They should not fear this kind of persecution and suffering because ultimately these things were really for their own good. Really, ultimately they were. Christ is superior to the devil, right? Obviously, he is superior to the devil. In fact, by this time, when he's talking to these believers in Smyrna, he had already defeated the power of Satan. He'd already defeated death by his own death and by his resurrection. So Satan, at this point, was already a defeated foe. He's just waiting his sentencing. He's been sentenced. He's just waiting the fulfillment of his sentence. The Lord was allowing the devil, because he is superior to the devil, so anything the devil does, the Lord God allows it through his permissive will. So the Lord Jesus was allowing the devil to persecute the church. He even says it here. He says, you're going to be persecuted that you may be tried. The Lord knew, you see, that persecution was the best way, and still is today, the best way to purify his church. And especially here, his newly formed church. He wanted to purify it. 
He knew ahead of time that the blood of the martyrs would be the seed of his church. He knew that suffering would also eliminate the tares which Satan had already begun to oversow in the church. The Lord knew that suffering would cause his people also to lean on him for their strength and for grace and for peace and for their courage as he also knows how suffering has a refining effect it makes christians more useful vessels of the holy spirit suffering is the fire that prepares believers for maximum service and for usefulness because what does suffering do to us it makes us more like who makes us more like Christ. If we're more like Christ, we're going to be more useful to God. So persecution is for the church's own good, and it is the glory of its testimony of Christ to the world. There's no better way to show the world our, our faith and our, the sureness of our faith than to be persecuted and let the world see that we're willing to be persecuted for what we believe in. Martyrdom for Christ's sake is also a great honor from the Lord's perspective. It's a great honor because that individual not only leaves behind him a beautiful testimony. I mean, we're still studying about Polycarp, and he was uh, martyred 1,800 years ago. And he's, he's left behind him a fantastic testimony. So he not only leaves behind a, a great testimony for the watching world, but as we'll see as we get a little bit further in this letter, that individual also receives in heaven a special blessing. That individual receives a crown of life. We'll see this at the end of verse 10. Not only did the suffering Smyrna saints need not to fear what either the devil or men might do to them, because God is the one who is really in control, and he was allowing these things for their own ultimate good and for his own glory. But they were not to fear persecution because there really is nothing that Satan or men can do to us or to our brothers and sisters alive in the world today who are being persecuted. There's nothing that men or Satan can do which ultimately can separate them from, or can ever, I shouldn't say ultimately, that can ever separate them from the love of Christ. You know, it tells us in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, that there is absolutely nothing, not life nor death, angels, principalities, powers, height, depth, any other creature, nothing, 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 that can, not even ourselves, that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And uh, the Lord himself, remember, had told his followers in Matthew 10, 28, we brought this up last week, that men might be able to kill the body, but they can't touch the what? The soul. So he said, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. In hell, So we shouldn't fear men. We shouldn't fear Satan. Who should we fear? We should fear God. And, of course, that's with a reverential fear if we belong to him. If we do not belong to him, yes, we should definitely fear him. And that fear should drive us to him and beg him to save us. So the only person believers should fear is God himself, because he is the only one who has the power to destroy both the body and the soul. 
putting the soul in eternal torment in hell. The Lord was telling the church at Smyrna not to fear their persecutions because they would not be able to rob them. Their persecutors would not be able to rob them of their eternal blessings, which were already theirs because of their faith in him. The individual who has the Lord Jesus Christ has enough to endure anything. You know, we may fear it now, but when the rubber met the road and we were faced with our persecutors, the Lord Jesus Christ would give us everything that we needed to face that moment. He would. That's his promise. So they would have everything. When grace would be needed, grace would be supplied. Same with you and I. Sometimes, you know, we, we don't think we have it. But that's because we're not in that situation. He's going to give it to us at the time we need it. When strength is needed, strength will be supplied. When courage is needed, the courage will be supplied. And how do I know that? How can I say that and know it? 100% know it. Because of God's word. He promises, doesn't, doesn't he, in Philippians 4.19, that God is able to supply all of our need... According to his riches, does he have a lot of riches? You better believe it. Paul wrote, but my God shall supply all your need. That doesn't mean just material need. That means if you need grace and courage and strength, he's going to supply it according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Well, then the next thing that we want to point out about the Lord's words of advice and counsel to the Smyrna believers in this verse, verse 10, is that he predicted a specific limit to their time of tribulation. He said, you shall have tribulation how long? Ten days. Because he had already reminded them of the fact that he is sovereign, eternal God, when in this same letter he referred to himself as the first and the last... And because he had also reminded them that he is the one who proved his power over Satan and over the grave and over death and over sin by his resurrection, which is what he referred to when he said, I'm also the one which was dead and is alive. Because of these things, we know that he is the one who was in control of the persecution that these believers were going through because he's sovereign, eternal God. And he is the resurrection and the life. He was in control as he also is still in control today. So it was by his permissive will that Christ was allowing the devil to persecute his church. But he was only going to allow the devil to do this for a period of 10 days. Now... Although some Bible teachers have suggested that the 10 days refers to the last 10 years of this second stage of church history, which was the years 303 to 312 A.D., and this was really the time when the church suffered intense, terrible persecution, they were the worst of all of all of the 200 years of persecution. So some say this is what the Lord was referring to when he says... Um, 10 days. However, the vast majority of Bible teachers, along with um, secular historians, most agree that 
there were ten great waves of persecution during this entire period of church history, which was from about 64 to 312 A.D. There were ten edicts written by ten different Roman Caesars, which were aimed at wiping out Christianity. Now, during the second and the early third centuries, this persecution stage of church history literally saw hundreds and hundreds of Christians brought into large amphitheaters, such as the one I've got pictured here, in order to be fed to hungry lions, while thousands, this is the part that just boggles my mind, thousands of spectators would be gathered there, you know, even with their families, their children, to cheer on, just as though they were watching a a modern-day football game or something. They're, They're cheering while they're watching Christians being eaten alive by lions. And then many, many others were crucified. They still continued to, you know, use the awful torture of crucifixion. Many thousands of Christians were tortured by crucifixion, while others were, you know, covered with tar, and then they were set on fire to serve as torches, human torches. Many were covered with animal skins, and then they were tortured to death by wild dogs. And yet others were actually, as I mentioned before, boiled to death in oil. And then as in the case with Polycarp and many others, some were burned at the stake. One church historian has estimated that as many as five million Christians were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ during this time in history. Five million. Which, according to the population of that day, would be equivalent to 100 million people being one you know 100 million people being martyred today that would be the equivalent population wise now whether or not the lord had the reins of 10 persecuting roman caesars in mind when he predicted 10 days of tribulation we can't say dogmatically we don't know that this is what he meant by 10 days but we do know that whatever his 10 days Symbolized, he was saying that there was to be a divine restriction placed on Smyrna's suffering. On a personal level, we want to always keep in mind that these church letters are also for the benefit of individual Christians. This means that you and I should take courage and we should take hope in knowing that any suffering for Christ's sake that we may be encountering, you know, because of our faith in him, and our persecution, I know, is nothing compared to persecution of other peoples, as we just heard about. But some of us may be facing persecution um, by way of rejection of someone very close to us, a spouse or a parent or a child. And in some ways, that kind of person can even hurt, that kind of persecution can hurt even more than physical persecution. But we have the Lord's promise that our suffering is for a limited time. The Lord in his sovereignty, I hope you can take comfort in this if you are facing some kind of persecution. In his sovereignty, he has already set a divine restriction on your time of suffering. And he will not allow you to be tested above what you are able to endure. Isn't that his promise? He'll give us a way of escape. He will never test us beyond what we're able to endure. That's 
his promise in 1 Corinthians 10.13. And Paul wrote this. He said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The Lord was advising the Smyrna Christians, and he was encouraging them, you see, by telling them that they need not fear whatever might happen to them, because ultimately, if they could just keep this in mind, ultimately it was for their own purification, and it was for his glory. It really wouldn't harm them in the long run, because their souls and even their bodies in resurrected glory. You know, I said, the men might hurt the body, but even that is temporary because at the rapture, even the body is going to be resurrected in a glorified body. So in the long run, their souls and even their bodies would live forever. If you think about this, I have a son who's, sometimes he, he really... He convicts me all the time, but, you know, he wants to be on a mission field. He wants to go to somewhere like Sri Lanka or some third world country. And, you know, he doesn't, he's, he's not all that careful about danger or doesn't, doesn't think about things like, well, he does think about it, but he always tells me, he says, well, Mom, what would be the worst that could happen to me? He says, you know, I could be killed for my faith and be instantly with the Lord. And one day I'll get my body. You know, and it, it, as a mother, you go, ah, you're horrified. But when you put it down, really down to the basics, that's true. And then you get the added bonus of the martyr's crown, the crown of life. So really, you know, we have to, sometimes we have to just stop looking. It's, it's so hard to get our eyes off the temporal and onto the eternal. But that's basically what he's trying to tell these Christians. It's your, what you're going through is just really but a moment. And it really, compared to eternity, it's just light affliction. And what is it doing? It's working for you an exceeding great glory and an eternal glory. It's, I kind of compare it to having a baby. You know, it's just but a short period of time in labor. But isn't the end result so worth it? Yes, that's why we have another one and another one. <laughs> well, some of us do. Some of us quit after the first one. But you'd still admit it's definitely worth it. Well, he was advising them here that whatever would happen, it was ultimately going to be for his glory and their own good. All things work together for our good if we truly love the Lord and belong to him. His serious counsel to them, therefore, because of all this, was to be faithful unto death. You know, be like Polycarp. And then because in our humanity, as we mentioned, we know that it is a very scary thing to die a martyr's death and to possibly face certain kinds of very cruel tortures, the Lord added a special promise. He said, be faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. This crown is a crown of eternal life. And, of course, all believers get eternal life. You receive eternal life actually at the moment you're saved. But what he was doing here was promising a special, I believe, now not everybody agrees with this, but I believe he was promising those who die for their faith in him or who go through terrible, terrible tribulation and suffering for him a special honor in heaven. 
this crown of life. What he was doing was putting the glories of eternal life into stark contrast with the tribulations and the trials of sufferings and and martyrdom. When the two are compared, you know, there really is no comparison because one is just for such a short period of time. Paul described it as a moment. And the other is forever and ever and ever. So the Lord's advice then is to not choose the temporary over the eternal. You know, if we could only really knuckle that down, put it on our refrigerator and on our mirrors and everywhere, don't put the temporary over the eternal. Do you know there isn't a day that goes by that we don't do that, that we don't not do that that I, you know what i'm saying we always are putting the temporary over the eternal we should really be redeeming our time wisely getting getting rid of all those things that just waste time and getting down to what's really really important and that's the things that are going to last in eternity and what are they what's the only things that's going to last that are here on this earth right now the word of god is eternal and human souls are eternal So you need to be doing something with the Word of God, teaching it to others, sharing it with others, and you need to be concentrating on human souls. Those are the only two things that matter. The crown of life is also mentioned in James 1, 12. And as I said, I believe it's a special crown for those who give their lives for their faith and persevere through real, real difficult trials. It is one of six crowns. Some people say there are five crowns. Some people say six. This picture only showed five, so I wrote down the sixth one that is mentioned in the Bible. That's the crown of gold. Let me tell you what these six crowns are in the Bible. One of six crowns that is promised to believers, faithful believers. In addition to the crown of life, which I believe is the martyr's crown, there is the incorruptible crown. This is found in 1 Corinthians 9.25. You don't need to write these down there in your notes. Um, because this is, this is for Christians who demonstrate self-control in the race of life. They call it on uh, here the victor's crown. And then there is the soul winner's crown. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 and Philippians 4.1. This is for believers who bring other people into Christ's kingdom. Of course, the Holy Spirit does that, but they are the instruments the Holy Spirit uses. So that's the soul winner's crown. Then there is the crown of righteousness mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.8. And this is for those who live godly, righteous lives. And most of all, Look forward to his appearing. This is what they call uh, the crown for those who love his appearing. Are you waiting and watching anxiously for the Lord's appearing, the time of the rapture? If you are, and you know, if every day you say, oh, if only it would be today, even so, come Lord Jesus, then you are going to get a crown in heaven for anxiously waiting for him to return. And then there is a crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4. This is for those who are faithful shepherds over their flocks, whatever flock God has entrusted to them. I don't believe that this is just for pastors. I believe it's for anybody who has a flock. Uh, It could be a little group of Sunday school kids. It could be a group of ladies in a Bible study. 
It, it could be a, a, a group of women that meet in your home. Maybe it could even be your own children. I don't know. We'll find out in heaven. There's a lot of questions we don't know about these crowns, but we're promised a crown of glory if we're a faithful shepherd over our flock. And then there's the crown of gold, which some do include, some don't include, but it is mentioned in Revelation 4.4, and this is the evidence of the believer's redemption. The 24 elders are wearing these golden crowns. So in one sense, I think every believer probably gets the crown of gold. The 24 elders represent the church. Now these crowns are not, to be, are not for believers to, um, to wear throughout all of eternity on their heads. And you know, like if you have all six of them to go around trying to balance them on your head and bragging and boasting to everybody how many crowns you got. That is not at all the purpose for the crowns. They are for us to present to the Lord in our worship of him and in our appreciation of all he has done for us. It's so that we have something to cast at his feet and to give back to him. That's what the 24 elders are doing in Revelation chapter 4. They're taking their crowns of gold and casting them at the feet of the Lord Jesus while they say these words, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Okay, let's move on to his appeal now, and this is in verse 11. Let me read um, the first part where it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That's the Lord's appeal. Here again, the Lord Jesus, as he had done in his letter to the Ephesians, and as he is going to do in each one of these seven church letters, is making an appeal to the listener to open his ears. In other words, to have spiritual ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to them by way of Christ's words, um, you know, and in this particular case, to hear what he is saying to those who are suffering for his name's sake. Not only churches, but individual believers as well. It is truly for the benefit of the believer who is suffering because of his or her faith in Christ to seriously listen to what the Lord Jesus has to say in this letter about not fearing their persecutors and about being faithful to the end. You know, I'm sure that this is a passage in Scripture which Christians suffering today over in China or in Muslim countries refer to all the time. I'm sure that they get great comfort when they read these words from the Lord Jesus Christ to not fear just hang in there. It's only going to be for a limited time. Be faithful unto the end. Don't you know that that keeps them going? Of course it does. So they are very wise if they have spiritual ears to hear. And they will take comfort. Listening will give them comfort in realizing that there is a divine table set upon their time of suffering. You know, he may just go ahead and let them be killed for their faith. That would end their suffering. That would be the end of the timetable. And also it would give them great comfort to know that there is a crown of life waiting for them at the end of the road. All right, that's all I'm going to say about his advice. Now let's look at his award in the latter half of that verse. He goes on and he says, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. 1 John 5, 5. 1 John 5.5 5 is where we learn about what an overcomer is. 
this verse says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? So who is an overcomer? A believer in Jesus Christ. Are you an overcomer? If you're truly born again, if you have put your faith in Christ's atoning death, shed blood on your for on behalf of your sins, then you are an overcomer. Not because you've overcome the world, but because he overcame the world and you are in him. Therefore, you're an overcomer. So to the overcomer, the Lord gives the blessed assurance that they will never, ever experience the second death. Now, the one who is making this promise, remember, is the same one in Revelation 1, verse 18, who holds in his hands what kind of keys? The keys to death and to hell. He's the one who has the power and the authority to make this kind of a promise. And not only to make it, but to keep it. I mean, he's the keeper of the keys to death and to hell. So if he says that you're never going to experience the second death, you can hang on to that promise that it's a sure thing. You will never experience the second death. They have a little saying that if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you're born again, you'll only die once. What is the second death? The answer is found in Revelation 20:14, where John wrote, he said, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The first death is physical death. When the body separates from the soul. That is the first death. The second death, you know, and as Christians, we have also the wonderful hope that we might not even have to die the first death because we could be raptured and not even have to have the first death. The second death occurs when men who have died in unbelief, they've taken their last breath and they've never accepted Jesus Christ. The second death occurs when they are resurrected. You know, one day their bodies will also be resurrected. And they will go before the great white throne judgment. Their names will not be found in the Lamb's book of life. And therefore they will be cast in their resurrected body. Right now their soul, the soul of the unbeliever, goes to, uh, well they've got it called here, torment. Hades or hell. Remember we talked about how hell used to be divided into two compartments. One was paradise. But when Jesus... Um, resurrected, he took all of the believers out of paradise and took them up to heaven. So now the paradise section of hell is empty, but the torment section of hell is full of all the souls of unbelievers, both Old and New Testament. When their bodies are resurrected from the graves and join their souls, they will go and stand before the Lord God at the great white throne judgment. When their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, which it will not be, because God makes no mistakes, then they will be cast alive into the lake of fire to spend all of eternity in a body that can suffer, a resurrected body. This is the second death. It's pretty horrible, isn't it? 
This is what he's talking about. But this is what he is promising the child of God that they will never, ever, ever have to experience. They will never be hurt by the second death. In other words, if you truly belong to God because of his son, the Lord Jesus, then you will never be separated from God and you will never be separated from Christ. The second death has absolutely no power over us. Before I move on to Pergamos, I do want to tell you that unlike the city of Ephesus, which is not even in existence today, you know, except for the ruins, you can go and see the ruins, but unlike Ephesus, the city of Smyrna is alive and well today in modern-day Turkey. As a matter of fact, it's a very much of a, a thriving city. And amazingly, it is still called by the same name, except that in Turkish... You pronounce Smyrna as, who knows, Izmir. This Izmir, Turkey, is the same city as Smyrna that we read about in our Bible. Smyrna was the last of the Christian cities, as a matter of fact, I found this out in my International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, that it was the very last Christian city to hold out against the Mohammedans when they were invading Turkey and that whole part of the um, world. And what is amazing is that although Turkey, you know the the land of Turkey today, is very anti-Christian. It's, as a matter of fact, Turkey is 98% Muslim. Although this is true for the country, yet one-third of the population of Izmir, which is Smyrna, one-third profess to be Christian, although most of them are just professing Christians. They're Christians in name only. But even that fact is pretty amazing in a country that is 98% Muslim. But there is, I am glad to report, there is still a body of believers. They do have to meet in secret. They do have to meet underground. But there is a body of true born-again believers who are very much in love with Jesus Christ, alive and living in Smyrna today. He didn't come and remove their candlestick as he had done with Ephesus. Remember, this is a church that he had nothing negative to say. And so there is still, although it's very dim, there is still a light burning for Christ today in Smyrna. All right, let's move on now to the church at Pergamos. In this third Revelation church letter, we're going to find that the exact opposite condition existed in the Pergamos church as that which existed in the first church, the church at Ephesus. The problem with the Ephesian believers, remember, was that their pure doctrine wasn't enough. They had great pure doctrine, but it wasn't enough because they had left their first love for Christ. On the other hand... With the Pergamite believers, the fact is that their love wasn't enough. Now, they had a lot of love, but it wasn't quite enough because they began to compromise on their, what do you think, on their doctrine, exactly. The Pergamites fell into Satan's deceptive lie that in order to manifest the true unconditional love of Jesus Christ, one has to be tolerant. You'll hear a lot of that today because we are big time today into the ecumenical movement. 
churches wanting to all come together and say, well, if we're going to really show Christ's love, we have to be tolerant. That's Satan's lie. Especially when it comes, I mean, there's things we need to be tolerant about, but not when it comes to doctrine, the doctrines of our faith. Instead of testing or trying the spirits, as we're told to do in 1 John 4, verses 1 to 3, and as the Ephesians had done so well, and for which the Lord commended them, they were very good in testing the spirits. Rather than doing that, the Pergamite church tolerated you know, they were tolerant. And so they tolerated the false teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. We'll see this next week when we get into the bulk of the letter. And they also made the dreadful mistake of allowing these heretics to take up residence within the church itself. You see, Satan had learned something. Satan learned from his first two centuries of attacking the church, that persecution only causes the church to flourish and to continue in almost a, a constant state of revival. That's a good thing about persecution. The church stays revived and excited for the Lord. So after two centuries of persecuting the church, he finally changed his tactic and now he elevated the church. He married the church to the state. And essentially what he was doing was marrying the church to the world. And you know what? He was far, far, far more successful in bringing serious damage to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this manner than he ever was when he persecuted it. You'd think he would have learned this lesson and stopped persecuting the church in China and instead make Christianity the state religion in China. And then it would go downhill as we have freedom here in this country and what's happening to the church is going downhill. Pergamos represents the third stage in church history. This is the stage which began with the reign of Emperor Constantine. After Diocletian died, Constantine came into power. We'll talk about how he came into power and all about this man next week. But he did come into power in 313 A.D. And this second period of church history ends around the year 590, or you could round it off and say around 600 A.D. Pergamos in Greek, remember what it means? Yes, thoroughly married is what it means, or elevated, either elevated or thoroughly married, two different meanings. And very appropriately, the church which existed in first century Asia Minor and the church stage of history which it represented both show us what will happen when any church or when any believer who marries the world and compromises their testimony for Jesus Christ, what will happen to this one? When they tolerate false teachings or, by, be, or they are tempted by worldly treasures. This is what we will learn in, as we study this letter. What will happen to any church or any Christian who tolerates sin? 
false doctrine or is tempted by worldly treasures. Let's talk a little bit, first of all, about the details of the city. If you were today to travel about 60 miles north of Izmir, which is down here where Smyrna is, about 60 miles north, you would come to what used to be the capital of Asia Minor, Pergamos. And it is located about 15 miles from the sea. Below the hill on which Pergamos once stood, there is today a city called Bergama. And it comes from the, you know, it's a Turkish corruption of the same name that we read in our Bible, Pergamos. Today, if you went there, it's called Bergama. It only has a population of about 20,000 people. It used to be a big, huge, thriving city. It used to be the capital of the whole area. Today, there's only about 20,000 people there. Greek mythology states that Pergamos was um, the birthplace of Zeus. You know, he's the father of all the gods. They also teach that the city was founded by the son of Hercules. Of course, this is mythology, and it's foolish. As to its true origin, you know, where the, who really founded that city, we, we don't know. We do know that when John penned this letter from Christ to the Pergamos uh, church, that it had already, the city had already been the capital of Asia Minor for about 300 years. Now, Pergamos, you'll read other places, also can be called Pergamum. And that is because that is the Latinized form of the Greek word Pergamos. So you'll see Pergamum and Pergamos. And it was known at that time for being a religious center. There were four very major temples which existed in Pergamos back in those days. One was the temple to Athena. That is her Greek name. In Roman, she was known as Minerva. She was the Greek goddess and Roman goddess of war. War. She was said to be the daughter of Zeus. Zeus is the father of all the gods. Uh, she was represented, Athena was represented by an owl and by a serpent. Remember that when we talk about things next week. Her, one of her symbols was that of a serpent. She was the patron goddess of the city. Then there was another temple, and it was a temple to Dionysus. Dionysus is the Greek name for Bacchus. Bacchus is the Roman name for this particular god. He was the god of who knows what. Wine, I heard it. Wine and revelry. You can imagine what worship of him must have included. They say that he was the son of Zeus, or one of the many sons of Zeus. Then there was the temple to Zeus, of course. Um, and what is his Roman name? Does anybody know? Jupiter, right. And he, of course, as I said, was the father of all gods. And these are false gods, so you spell that with a little g. His temple was tremendous. It was built right on that hill, which was behind Pergamos. And it had an altar that was 40 feet high. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was just magnificent. And this... Um, altar stuck out of the hill so that it almost looked like a seat on the side of a hill if you can picture that it would look almost like a throne and we'll hear the lord say that pergamos was where satan had his throne this may be one of the reasons he said that 
And the fourth temple, the fourth major temple that was in Pergamos was the temple to Asclepios. Now that is the Greek name, and um, the Roman name is Asclepius. They're real similar. He was the son of Apollo. He was said to have become so skilled in medicine that he could restore the dead to life. So he was called Soter, which is the Greek word for Savior. He was their great physician. And you know what his symbol was? A snake coiled around a pole. I mean, everything Satan does, he counterfeits Christ. Remember what Moses was to lift up in the wilderness? so that the people would be saved from the snake bite was a snake lifted up on a pole. That was the symbol of Christ who would die for, you know, he'd literally become sin for us and be lifted up on a pole on a cross. Well, this is still today the symbol, um, the medical insignia which is used by physicians today. If you go to a physician's office, you'll see that symbol of a pole with a snake wrapped around it. It is also the symbol, the medical symbol used by the United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. To the temple of Asclepius, handicapped and sick people from literally around the world used to come. Here in Pergamos is where it was. And they would come there to be healed. They would go into the temple. There was no furniture in the temple at all, but they would have live snakes crawling around on the floor of this temple. It almost sounds like an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> this is true. And people who were sick and wanted to be healed would go to the temple and they, would, they were told to go in and lie on the floor and sleep. Now, I don't think I'd get a whole lot of sleep, <laughs> but they were supposed to sleep there. And then during the night, the god, Asclepius, would supposedly reveal to the priests and to the physicians by means of dreams what the remedies were that were necessary to heal these sick or handicapped people. And they said that if a snake actually came and touched them, that they, that, that was a touch from the God and that he was going to heal them. Well, what I think is really interesting is that affiliated with this temple was a school of medicine right next door. And don't you know that they much, must have majored in snake bites? <laughs> Oh, me. It would be funny if it wasn't so tragically true. Anyway, so you can see that Pergamos was set up for all kinds of horrible satanic deception. And that's why twice Christ says that this is the city where Satan dwelled. Now, the, ti the city also bore the title of um, Thrice Neokopros, which means that there were three temples which had been built in that city for the worship of three different Roman Caesars. And Pergamos was also, the Caesar cult was also very prominent in this city. And it was also known for being an intellectual center. Doesn't sound too intellectual to me to let snakes crawl all over you, but they actually had a library which boasted of 200,000 volumes. You say, wow, well, that's nothing. 
but it wasn't that day because this was before the printing press and every volume had to be handwritten from cover to cover. So that was a library second only to the library over in Alexandria, Egypt. Well, when Mark Antony came into power, he took the books, these 200,000 volumes of books from the Pergamos Library, and he gave them to Cleopatra as a love gift. Maybe it was a Valentine's Day gift. I don't know what. But he gave her the 200. Don't you know that's what she did in all her spare time was read <laughs> read those volumes. But anyway, I don't think that made the Pergamite people very happy to lose their library to their competitors, the Alexandrians. Anyway, Pergamos also was known for the place where parchment paper was first made. And this was where it was manufactured. So, And that's where the word parchment comes from is the word pergamos. It actually comes from two Greek words, pergamene and charta. And they put them together and you get parchment. So see, you've learned all these important things this morning. Details about the church. Very little is known about the church which existed in Pergamos other than, of course, what we learned from this letter that Christ wrote to it. We do know that the gospel reached Pergamos early in the second half of the first century. And this was probably indirectly through the labor of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. He spent so much time in Ephesus that we believe most of these churches were shoot-offs from that work in Ephesus. We are told that the church was established in a very, very wicked place, as we've just seen. And as a matter of fact, twice in this letter, both of them are found in verse 13, the Lord said that this is where Satan had headquartered himself. He had been in Babylon. He's now in Pergamos. He would move his headquarters to another city shortly after Pergamos, and that city would be Rome. Now, there are two conditions which are evident to us about this church located in such a pagan religious center. The first thing which is evident is the fidelity or the faithfulness of some of its members to the Christian faith in spite of the pressures of worldliness and paganism all around them. And this condition resulted in the martyrdom of some of them. We see one man is mentioned in this letter who was martyred for being faithful, even in such a pagan society. His name was Antipas. We'll talk about him next week. The other condition which is obvious to us about this church is the infidelity or the unfaithfulness of another segment of the members of this church, apparently the majority. And this is manifested in doctrinal defection and in compromise with the worldliness and the paganism of the city. That's all I'm going to say about the details of the church. Now I'm going to move on to the third part of our outline. This is the description of himself which Christ gives to the church. So let's look at verse 12. He says here, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Remember, in each one of the seven church letters, the Lord selects one of the aspects about his nature, which was revealed to John in that chapter 1 vision. And the Lord presents this to that particular church he's writing to in his greeting or his salutation to them. Now, to Pergamos, remember how he, he um, referred to himself in the last letter we looked at? 
Smyrna. He talked about being the first and the last because they needed to know he was in control. He's sovereign, eternal God. He talked about the fact that he was dead and now is alive. They needed to be reminded of resurrection. Now to Pergamos, how does he refer to himself? He talks about the fact that he is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. In John's description, if you look at verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, remember we were told that this sharp two-edged sword came out from where? His mouth. I, and I still cannot find a picture ever that shows it the right way. Where the sword is, this isn't it, where the sword is actually coming out of his mouth. But that's what we're told. The sword came out of his mouth. It was this very weapon, the two-edged sword, which Christ himself used in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan, back in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. And it's the Christian's weapon as well, isn't it? I mean, everything else we have is armor, but the weapon that we have is the two-edged sword, the Word of God. Just like the Lord showed us by his own example with Satan and even with his other enemies, whenever he was talking to the scribes and Pharisees, what was his weapon? The word of God. He always says, would say, it is written. Here's what it says, God's word. And so we're, um, just like him, we are to use our two-edged sword to overcome satanic error and opposition to our faith. Nothing but the sharp truth can cut through and defeat and expose error. Now, we might ask, why is God's word said to be two-edged? Well, this is because it has two major functions. One function, one edge of the sword is salvation. One edge of the sword is used to separate a person from his or her sin. You know, the word slices right through the chains that bind a man to his sin and bind him to death. And one edge of that sword cuts him loose from those chains, frees him. The second edge of the sword is judgment. The other edge of that sword is going to be used on the unbelieving world in judgment. All those who reject the first edge of the sword, which is salvation, which loosed them from their bondage to sin and death, will consequently have to experience the second edge of the sword. It tells us in Revelation 19, verse 15, that at the Lord's second coming, and here's an example where he shouldn't have that sword in his hand, it should be coming out of his mouth, but at his second coming, he's going to smite the nations with the sharp word coming out of his mouth. And that sharp word, of course, is his word. He will just say whatever he needs to say, and all fighting will end. And everyone will drop dead at the Battle of Armageddon. So one edge of the sword, or God's word, symbolizes salvation. The other edge symbolizes judgment. The living word of God divides mankind in two. It just cuts mankind in two. The saints and the ain'ts. The saved and the unsaved. There are those who hear its message and they believe it. And subsequently they are saved and they fall on one side of the sword. And then there are those others who either willfully ignore the message of the gospel um, or disbelieve it. 
I don't mean willfully ignore. They either ignore or they willfully disbelieve it, and therefore are judged by it, and they will fall on the other side of that sword. Now, it would seem very reasonable to understand that the Lord Jesus, in writing to the church at Pergamos, used this particular designation of himself as the one with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth in order to remind the church members here in Pergamos of two important things. First of all, he was reminding them to use this two-edged sword to cut off those false teachers who they were tolerating. They had not been trying or testing the heretics with their sword, with the word of God, as the Ephesians had been so careful to do. And then secondly, by using this designation of himself, he was reminding them that they themselves had been cut off from the world. They had been severed from sin, and so they had no business returning to some of the world's ways and practices. They were to stop flirting and compromising with the world, with the pagan society in which they lived. Now, as we're going to learn next week when we discuss the fourth part of this outline, which is the big part, the declaration from Christ, the rest of the uh, letter, this church was located at the heart of Satan's territory. The heart of it. So tragically, some of the Christians began to try to ride the fence. They began to court the world a little bit. You know, persecution had ended, and now the world was starting to look kind of good to them. And this, as I said before, was Satan's greatest tactic of all. When he had tried to crush the church out of existence, its testimony only appeared all the more sweet to the watching world, which was attracted by the fragrance of its faith. Satan, during the Pergamos stage of church history, discovered that when he would just leave the church alone and allow her to feel real comfortable in the world, that then he could encourage her to mingle with the world. And this tactic worked so well that the church almost went out of existence during the period of time known as the Dark Ages, which is the next stage of church history that we go into, the stage of Thyatira. You know, all apostate churches which is where it ends up at the end, Laodicea, the last of the seven letters. Church history winds up in the apostate church stage. Um, all apostate churches, somewhere along the way, began with a cooled-off love toward Jesus Christ, which is what we saw in the Ephesian church. And then eventually this cooled-off love led them to the initial sta step of compromise with the world. Then somewhere along the line, the church began to water down some of the essential truths of the word of God, some of the essential doctrines of the faith. And they did this for the sake of better appeal. You know, well, we can't maybe talk so harshly about hell that doesn't appeal to the world. 
well, we shouldn't really talk about a virgin birth. That's kind of fanatical, you know. Um, maybe we shouldn't mention blood. We should take the blood out of all our hymns because that's, you know, we don't want to be seen as a bloody faith. And so they began to, to compromise to appeal to the world, to better attract the outside world, to draw in greater numbers. Or even they did this for the sake of their own selfish worldly indulgences. A lot of the things that they did were just to feed their own lusts. And this became the beginning of the church's steps toward eventual apostasy. You know, this is exactly what happened with Israel. You know, the church is supposed to have learned from Israel's mistakes, but we don't. When Israel first came into the promised land, she failed to obey God by destroying all of the pagan peoples who dwelled there. They left some. They left some of those pagan people. When we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to put away and destroy all of our worldly habits and our practices. God had commanded Israel to destroy all of her enemies. But you see, the Israelites thought that they knew better than God. They thought, well, there's not going to be any harm in sparing some of these pagan people. Just as Christians will say, well, there's not harm in keeping this one little sin or this one little habit or compromising in this one little area. The result with the Israelites, however, was that very soon, what did they begin to do? They began to marry, they began to mingle, and then they began to marry with these pagans who they didn't wipe out. And this compromise led to the next step, which was a falling away from God, when they began to worship the gods of the pagan women after whom they had lusted and then married. The mistake was that Israel had tried to split her love. She tried to split her love between God and the world. And what was the result? She fell. The church tried to do exactly the same thing back in the years that we're going to be looking at, in Pergamos, the years 313 to 590 A.D. God does not want our affection to be divided between he and the world. You know, he is extremely jealous of our hearts. The truth, hopefully, that we're going to learn in this lesson next week is that we are not to compromise. We are not to love the world. We are not to love the world's pleasures and treasures, and we are not to compromise on the, on the doctrines, the heresies that the world will try to throw at us. And this is what I hope we will look at next week when we study the church that married the world. That is a bad combination. That's being unequally yoked, and it doesn't work. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had this morning in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the two-edged sword, the weapon that you have given to us. And I pray, Lord, that we will use it effectively and that we will use it for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.